Hi, I'm Jennifer Zollett. And I'm Larkin Bell. Welcome to our podcast, A Female Lens. Here we are. Here we are. Another another whiffin, another week. And this week we are discussing the snub of female directors at the Golden Globes for the nominations. Yeah. Um, no women were nominated for best director nope. um, at the 2020 Golden Globes. So that's a bummer. But also um, not a shock. Right. Yeah. There's precedent. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. There really is. It's like last year it was the same thing. Um, every year we're disappointed by the Golden Globes. Mm-hmm. And we keep thinking maybe, I guess, something will change. And yeah. then it doesn't. Totally. And like this year we had some really great contenders. Mm-hmm. We had Greta Gerwig with Little Women, Lulu Wong for The Farewell, Lorene Scafaria for Hustlers, and Mario Heller for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Um, all with incredible films that are being considered also in other categories. That's the mm-hmm. frustrating part too. It's yeah. not like, okay, these films are not part of the conversation at all. They are, and they got nominated for other things and and they were not. They were overlooked like, yeah, for this. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and also Ava DuVernay for When They See Us um, was not yeah. nominated for that series, which right. is insane because it, it also. It got so many Emmy nominations. I think it was 16. Yeah. Wow. So it's like, what's, where's yeah. the disconnect? Like, I mean, obviously there is a disconnect. Yeah. And it's huge. And it seems to be at every, every level everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the answers or the primary answer mm-hmm. is probably the people who are yeah. voting on especially the golden globes right yes. right and uh, it's the hollywood foreign press association mm-hmm. there's about um, 90 members um yeah um yeah i, I feel like what's most telling is mm-hmm. a quote from the hfpa president <laughs> lorenzo soria um and basically he responded to variety when they asked him about the snub and he said what happened is that we don't vote by gender we vote by film and accomplishment <laughs> yeah, <laughs> take a moment of silence for that because that just feels wow. So that's like people saying, "I don't see color." Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, which okay. they're kind of saying with the best actress category. Yep. A bit. Yeah, yeah, um, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, we'll get to that. But yeah, it's just I just feel like yeah. What is the criteria we're basing this on? It like, seems like we're at a point where a lot of people in the industry. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like critics creators, etc., um, are aware of the fact that this is a strange voting body. Mm-hmm. It's small, it's niche, and their perspective isn't very representative of the audience or, like, the peers of right. the people being mm-hmm. nominated. Yeah. But it is an establishment, it has a lot of money, mm-hmm. it's on television, so it continues to be this big event, and it's, you know, like an Oscars precursor award show. Mm-hmm. So it's still there. It's in the conversation. People pay attention to it. But also everyone sort of acknowledges or is aware of the fact that the people making the decisions of who's nominated, it's just like a it's a, a weird, non-representative perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do we, I don't know, like reconcile that or right. Right. deal with it? 
And it, yeah, and even kind of more meta conversation about it. It's hard where it's like, okay, we want these women to be nominated for these awards, but it's like, at the end of the day, do these awards matter? And it's like, they do, but also, do they really in the context of the whole awards conversation? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not as much. Everyone's like, yeah, Golden Gloves, yeah, take it or leave it. Maybe it's not really a predictor for the Oscars. Maybe Mm -hmm. it is. Who really knows? But we're still going to talk about it. So it feels... It feels weird a little bit where you're like, okay, we want these women to be part of the conversation, but then we're like, okay, the Golden Globe doesn't really matter, but Mm -hmm. then we keep talking about it even more. Right. Mm -hmm. We're giving more power and meaning to it by sitting here talking about it on Mm -hmm. our podcast even, which, yeah, but it's hard. (laughs) It's real meta. (laughs) Yeah. Like, we can't not talk about it, though, but that's the frustrating part is that it does even have that amount of power Mm -hmm. still. Um, And, yeah, earlier we were trying to figure out, like, how would you even take away this power from the Globes. Like, Mm. everybody doesn't view it necessarily as this, like, huge accomplishment, yet it's still, like, a big part of the conversation. Um, And it doesn't seem to be going anywhere, you know? Like, they're sticking around. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what the answer is there, but... Yeah. Some people were also banding about the idea of best female director category, Mm -hmm. which... um, is an intriguing concept. Yeah. And you know what? Right now, yeah, with Best Director, it's not working. No. That seems very clear, and, and it's not changing. Even though the industry is making slow progress, right. um, it is making progress. So, like, yeah. let's reflect that, and it's mm-hmm. it's not showing. So, I'm really intrigued by that category. Yeah. It is a bummer to have to separate it, because it's of like, course. why? But, you know, if we have to do that in the meantime, why yeah. not consider if that? If that's the only way that women are going to be recognized in the way that they deserve to be, then fine. Yeah. Like, let's do that. And I, I think, I think keep it, the keep it podcast was mm-hmm. the one to, they mentioned if there were, um, just a best actor category mm-hmm. and no best actress <laughs> category, then again, no women would be nominated in that category except mm-hmm. Meryl Streep. They said, <laughs> um, it doesn't feel like the best, the most ideal long-term solution mm-hmm. because obviously then you have this binary and you're excluding people who identify as non-binary, right. but that's also already kind of an established yeah, way of dividing categories. nominated either. Yeah. yeah so that's like, like a, there's so much work to be another done. <laughs> whole thing to tackle. Yeah. But yeah, if we're trying to address this, this g- giant gender imbalance mm-hmm. in this particular category, that would be an interesting thing to, to explore further. Completely. Um, another interesting thing that came up, because, yeah, it's kind of a bummer to be like, gosh, women are snubbed again. Women mm-hmm. aren't really being looked at, right. you know, all this thing. So we were trying to say, like, okay, where are efforts to maybe try to, you know, correct mm-hmm. that a little bit? Yeah. Um, and one thing we found, which we will link to in the show notes, is basically it's this collaborative effort between Women in Film, Women in Hollywood, and New York Women in Film and Television. And they made this 2019-2020 award season ballot um, that imagined if more women were recognized. Uh, during this award season and basically included all or a, a, a huge amount of yeah. women for all the different categories mm-hmm. and honestly it was it was inspiring to me to yeah. look at because I was like wow so many women were involved in so many of these films mm-hmm. that I really love this year so that was exciting to witness yeah um, and I encourage everyone to take a look at it and check out some of these um, amazing women right in the yeah work. go watch these films and yeah. support them um, yeah, I think it's an incredible list and really exciting and inspiring to see just how many people are listed here. It's, yeah, yeah it's like, we don't see that in the award show. We don't yeah. see, and it's like, look at how many women made films this year. Yeah. That is really inspiring. And I would 
add to this a couple of things. I there's a and there's been obviously a lot of articles about the, the Gold <laughs> yes. Globe snub and award season, et cetera. But yeah. in um, this New York Times piece about it, they mentioned that um, the farewell which was directed by Lulu Wong and Booksmart, directed by Olivia Wilde, both received better reviews based on Rotten Tomatoes mm. than the three Oscar frontrunners. And which ones Once are Upon a Time in Hollywood, <laughs> <laughs> Marriage Story, and The Irishman. Oh. So th- there's, like, even, you know, these kind of quantifiable ways that sure. you could say, why, like, seriously, yeah. why are these directors not being considered mm-hmm. for this one particular award show? Um and a lot of woman-directed films did really well at the box office mm-hmm. as well. So, I don't know. I wonder if um, it, all of these things take time. It's incremental progress. But maybe in some of the other ways that we've talked about this year, maybe this is hopefully some kind of turning point or the, the beginning of some kind of watershed where there's enough women who are legitimately Mm. doing good work, have ways of proving it, and this is only one awards show. Right. Um, Maybe the industry, and and when you have these campaigns, um, kind of promoting voting for women or uh, giving credit to all these women who've done great things, maybe we can collectively just start to kind of ignore the yeah. Golden Globes or just sort just of like push it, it to the side mm-hmm. and make yeah. it less of a big deal. Yeah. I don't know. Totally. And I think what you're also kind of touching on is like these other resources such as Rotten Tomatoes or whatever you look to to kind of, you know, find your recommendations mm-hmm. for watching movies. It's like, yeah, it is on us a little bit to seek out the work that we're mm, interested right. in and the work that we want to support. Like I yeah, it's like let's see a a woman's you know, a woman directed film in the right. theaters because that directly supports it and you can really vote with your dollar for yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Um something that Alma Harrell tweeted about um in response to the the snubs was it was she was talking about the fact that like these movies that get nominated, there's such um, money behind them and such mm-hmm. a financial like campaign pushing yeah. them to the forefront. Yeah. And that just really begs the question of like yeah, we're seeing certain films in, you know, our daily lives, whether it's through advertisements online or billboards or, you know, whatever, those films are getting that big push and often they aren't directed or featuring women. So it is on Mm -hmm. the consumer, it is on the audience to maybe make an extra effort and be like, okay, I want to support X, Y, Z. Yeah. Yeah. And like, think about even when you're watching on Netflix, um, what they're recommending and then what you could watch. And I think this, I think this list from women in film is just a great place to start Mm -hmm. generally. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we recommend checking it out. We'll link to it in the show notes. Yes, indeed. And, uh, keep supporting women, uh, women making films in 2020. Yeah. Let's watch a movie instead of watching the Golden Globes. Ooh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, we should have like a counter programming. Yeah, yeah. Of some I'm like, kind. why That'd watch it? Yeah. You know, right. I kind of feel like I'm like they're just gonna have fewer and fewer women every year showing up to the yeah. Globes. Like right. it's just gonna be a just a man party. <laughs> it is already. Well, Natalie, Natalie like, Portman did some good work last year. She time. did. And calling I out. Doubt yeah. they'll invite her again. You know. Love her. Love her. <laughs> Alrighty, onwards. Onward. Natalie Bronfman is a costume designer for film, TV, and theater. Most recently, she has designed The Handmaid's Tale. In between projects, she can be found doing runway shows during Fashion Week. A few notes about this episode. We were lucky to catch Natalie while she was in town for the Emmys, but because uh, we chatted in a hotel lobby, so you might hear a little bit more background noise than usual. 
Also, Elise joined in for this interview. Enjoy. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Natalie. We're so excited to talk to you. Oh, thank you for inviting me. We'd like to start at the beginning. How and when did you become interested in costume design? Mm, that's a long story. Um, <laughs> when I was about nine, uh, I have family members that sew quite proficiently, and they were teaching me just to do handwork and that sort of thing. And then I ended up starting out doing all the costumes for school plays. And I always ended up being the only one who didn't have a costume because I was so busy making everyone else's <laughs> while yeah. participating. Uh, then I ended up making prom dresses and somehow I ended up taking opera lessons because I really loved the opera. But I wasn't, wow, fantastic. So I was good, but not good enough. And nobody ever wants to be just good enough. So I was trying to figure out a way how to stay in the environment. And so I started already knowing how to draw and sew. I started, th I thought, well, maybe I can make the costumes for that. And then I went to school for that. So um, and when I took fashion programs as well, because often that's what happens is you end up in a fashion program and the costume is sort of a, a sideline. But then I and found a school in Rome that had only costume. And that's where I ended up. So after New York City. Yeah. So what does like a training program at college look like that for costume design? Uh, well, typically, um, first year consists of a little bit of everything, life drawing, um, just painting, learning color theory, those kind of things. Uh, endless circles of taking two colors and making every tone that you could possibly imagine from it and having it perfectly painted within that circle. <laughs> That's what I teach you. <laughs> you know, the colors between red and blue and then five billion tones and shades and it had to be immaculate you know that kind of thing I had a taskmasters as teachers <laughs> usually in the second year uh, you end up then starting going more into pattern drafting and draping and illustration proper illustration with colors and paints and so on so yeah this was I was I sort of studied all of this before we got into making patterns with um, computers I'm I'm I know how to do that, but I just I prefer doing them by hand. So it's, it's you know it's the human touch is always yeah. a little more, and every body, every person's body is not a computerized formula, so that makes a big difference. <laughs> wow, have you um, found, or did you I guess find a difference in costuming for theater and kind of real life versus film? It's hugely different. Uh, well, I should say hugely different in terms of what the end product is, but the, sometimes the method is similar. Often in film, we don't build a lot because of just time and budget, and you have two weeks and you have to dress you know, 50 people, that kind of thing. So a lot of things get shopped and then they're altered. Uh, luckily, in recent times, I've been on shows where it is a complete build, and that is a dream job. <laughs> we knit, we crochet, we build hats, we build flowers, we build everything. Yeah, so, um, but uh, the difference, the big difference is the time factor. In theater, you have much more time, usually. Like, you, you the process is much slower. Uh, and then also, you have one off every night for in terms of the product, like, in terms of the show. Mm. And if there's a mistake, you go home, you fix it, and the next day, next evening, it's been fixed and it's redone. Whereas in film, you sometimes have to produce right then and there. The scenes get shot, and you have to move on. So you have to get it right the first time. When you're designing for, like... A TV show. Are you doing mostly it digitally or still starting by hand? Oh, I do everything by hand. Okay, got I it. I actually okay. sketch. Um, I color. If I have the time, I paint it. But often, I don't even have the time for that. Sometimes it's sort of I've sketched the idea after you speak to the people, like the, the showrunners and the actors. Sometimes I have conversations with them as well. What? Do you, how do you see your character? This is what my idea is, and then we sort of confer and we come up with a design together. Yeah. Because you know, if they don't feel that they want a long swishy gown and and I had envisioned that. We speak about why. 
and then we come up to a compromise, yeah? And then usually I just run out and I swatch fabrics. Um, I'm very good at textile. Uh, and I usually purchase my own fabrics. I don't like to give that to the buyer because it's your own thing in your own head in terms of, of vision. So I, I, will, I can go directly to the fabric I need and it's much quicker from A to B that way. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't use anything computerized for that other than maybe, you know, fixing the colors once I've scanned it. Because <laughs> it's a bit too bright <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, it's such a craft. It's yeah. so cool. Wow. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I love hearing people talk about what they love. Oh, so that's I love cool. painting, drawing, all of that. Yeah. Building, anything. <laughs> so can you explain the difference between costume designer, costume supervisor, and costume buyer, and how everyone kind of works together in the costume department? Um, well, they all have very specific jobs. Um, there's also sometimes an, an assistant designer. Uh, so essentially, costume designer uh, is, let's see, their job is to come up with a concept. Um, basically to take the, the script and evolve the character through costume, which means you have literally a nanosecond once the person appears on screen to be able to tell the audience where they're at in their lives, socially, socioeconomically, uh, mentally, um, all of that. It has to be a blip. That's all you've got. So you have to be able to come up with that concept and, and conceptualize that. Then, um, often, for example, if you have an assistant designer, that person will then be the intermediary between the workroom uh, and your vision, let's say. Um, the costume supervisor is sort of the CFO of the costume department. They handle all, you know, the human resources, the financial um, ordering, the machinery, like all of it. Everything that makes the room tick, what, what is concerned with money and labor. Um, so those are the three different. And the costume buyer, typically you are given, um, you, have a, you, you speak with the costume designer, or sometimes through the assistant designer, and they're given notes about, okay, this character is, for example, a jeans and t-shirt look. Uh, we're thinking, I don't know, this sort of look with this sort of gene, bring me examples, and then they'll come back with six, seven examples. And then you triage that again, and then they'll tweak it, and then you have the fitting. So There's a lot of excess shopping involved. <laughs> shopping and returning. <laughs> And after the fitting, and whatever you don't need goes back, you know? Yeah. Can you explain um, sort of the process from, I don't know, pre-production, I'm assuming, mm -hmm. through a show or film, like what happens when with these different roles that you've had? Um, well, for example, okay, so you get a script, you read the script, and you annotate what you need to know, you know, in short, like really quickly. Then usually what I do is I'll go through a second pass and actually very carefully tear apart the script. What happens to this person? Okay, so there we have a stunt person. We need six more, or he gets shot, or you know, they're running after a car and they trip, so their knees are blown out in their jeans. So we need doubles. Like we start really going in detail of what is required. Um, also, you try to figure out the psychology. Um, if it is a writer that has written this, or it's from a book, what I will do is I'll go read the book, and not just for the last show that I've done, but also this is just something I do because there's another spin to it, and sometimes. It adds layers, which is, you know, it's like an onion skin. It, the more layers, the more interesting it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, right, so then you basically then you set up shop. Um, you start the process of the purchasing, the conceptualizing, purchasing, uh, building, possibly, if you're lucky enough, uh, fittings. Things then have to go for approval, and then eventually you'll end up with them on camera. It's quite a long process, so there's many steps to it. There's a few more in there, but they're just a little more minutiae, but that's it in the big picture. So when you're starting a new project, where do you draw design inspiration from? I'm sure it might be project-based, but 
do you have like a process or type of source? Oh, it's from everywhere. It's from art, <laughs> it's from music, it's from buildings. It's, um, I had a project once where uh, Antonio Gaudí, who's a Spanish architect, his things became this organic pattern in a dress that I made. And it was hand-painted onto the hem. So, you know, things like that. So it comes from literally anywhere. Um, literature, I love reading when I have time. I love old European literature, so you know Moliere and, and all those all those writers of that era. And paint, I, I paint myself, so my knowledge of art history is quite vast. From that's what I draw from. In your experience on various projects, shows, etc., has there been very much variation in how much like? I don't know, oversight the director or showrunner or somebody else um, wants to have over the designs? Yes, every time, um, because it essentially I'm a vehicle to make their vision happen. So really, um, I give my input and then we have to have meetings afterwards. I present my things with the costume meeting uh, and usually the production designer is there as well as the di director of photography, the DOP, the director, the showrunner, like everyone's there, it's a big meeting and we discuss because I mean in essence the biggest joke is always that your dress is the same color as the couch you're sitting on. <laughs> We don't want that happening, you know, like, you know. <laughs> so we have to always confer. We have to, have to, have to. So, And then also in those meetings as well, um, sometimes, for example, if I see somebody in a particular way in a character, they may have a completely different spin on it. So I have to, I have to know that from them in order to um, bring their vision to camera because it's their vision. Yeah, just one of the, one of the cogs. <laughs> so <laughs> this is related to that. What is your favorite part of the collaborative process when you're working with these different, you know, the director, showrunner, other departments? Yeah, I think. Uh, what's interesting often for me is to when you don't when you haven't really had a meeting yet and then you go and visit them just sort of wander around the hallway and go let's go visit props or let's go visit the set you know set people or let's go visit the production designer and they just as we do have all their information on the walls and often I just go in and look before I even say announce myself you know because it's usually at the beginning of their offices often that's typical and I just sort of look at all their patterns and color palettes and you know and then eventually I make my way to their office and then say hey you know how's it going and then we start chit-chatting and then I find that so fascinating to see what everyone's take is on the same project you know what everyone's faction is uh, color schemes and psychology and that always fascinates me the most is the psychology of it all yeah do you ever see some of the same things like on their inspiration that you've thought of yes. and then do you see things that you're like whoa I would have never thought of that absolutely. and that inspires something else oh yeah absolutely whoa it's, it's, it's so interesting because everyone is so different you know and if you haven't had that meeting yet I love that first take on every, everyone's first take on the project it's, it's brilliant and then you eventually meld it all together and make one candle you know it's 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 a brilliant thing. Ooh, I like that really candle cool. inventory. <laughs> burn it. Yeah. And it no. <laughs> How much did you study, or did you? It, I don't know what um, costume design school can, entails, but like color psychology or any kind of the psychology of design, etc. Not so much. It's just it's my personal thing that I I find very interesting. Um, what I do often is I find culturally. Uh, for example, the color white in Asian cultures is often is a color of mourning. Um, the color purple is in every culture, and it's a very strong, important, regal, powerful. You know, uh, Greco-Roman times, I mean, the togas were lined with that purple color because it was a very expensive dye to get. So it always meant that only the upper classes would have such a thing. Um, also, it is a color of mourning in other cultures. So it's all... 
and, and that's just studying history and reading and reading and reading. So that's just my own thing. Yeah. So we've talked about how you've, you kind of work with the other departments. How does the actor or actress kind of inform the costume design? I oh. guess like working on a TV show, yeah. you're kind of working with the same people. And yeah. how does that translate? Well, every episode, which is usually every two weeks, you have a new episode. You meet them every two weeks and we have a new fitting. So um, on certain shows, if you're there for many years, you know them so well that you almost the fitting becomes very short. It becomes shorthand. So you, oh, hi, here, I, you know, I put this on, and, and then you, you already know where they're going with their character arc. When you're new, and actually I just started a project, um, and I'm about to meet all the actors in a couple of days. I haven't seen them because they're all coming for a table read, being flown in from all over the world. I've already I've started getting emails going, hi, so I want to talk to you about my character. And then I, when I send them, like last night, for example, I sent uh, one of the characters all his mood boards and the things that we built for him already, and da-da-da-da-da. And his answer, answer simply was, Wow, that's great. We're on the same page. So, <laughs> that's like a dream response. Yeah, I know. Because I I, when, I, when I responded at first, I thought, oh, oh let's, let's see what he's going to say. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But it's, it's, uh, it has a lot to do with it. Because, if, for example, like if I put something on someone and they're unhappy or don't feel like it's part of them, their acting will be influenced by it. You know, um, if they feel the, For example, if something really blatant, like if they feel their character should be in trousers and I've put them in a dress, it's not, not going to work for them. So we have to figure it out together, you know. Yeah. Very, very important. I know you've probably had to answer a lot of questions about The Handmaid's Tale, um, but we would love to hear at least a little bit about your experience um, working on the show. Congrats on your Emmy nomination, by the way. Um, What is it like to work on a show that is such a visible part of popular culture at the moment? It's it's pretty... It's pretty powerful. Um, it's odd because our costume shop has no windows, and it's like a casino, so we don't know what time of day or year it is. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you go outside and you say, oh, it's snowing. <laughs> um, so the reason why I'm saying that is because sometimes you're so far removed, and the pace is so, when you're doing a series, is literally every two weeks it's a turnaround of new things. And this particular show was so huge this year. I mean, we had casts of hundreds it wasn't just 60 of this and 20 of that we had 100 of this 250 of this you know and you so you're you get into this sort of gerbil wheel of building and you just go 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 to bed go come back build some more go to bed come back build some more and the only time I really realized the the power of it is when we went to Washington to film the at the monument um, and we were we had we were building we built about 260 I think it was in the end of handmaids and we only had about 60 of them so we churned out that many and that's everything is built you know except for the boots but everything is built from the ground up and it was such a pace that when I finally got there and I took a break and the ladies were the, the background ladies were handing their capes back their cloaks to go off to lunch and I sat on a park bench sort of on the sidewalk sort of on the way to the tent to hand back your cloak I heard all these girls going, oh my god I can't believe this is so amazing that we're finally part of this you know it's just all these really interesting conversation and I thought to myself this is real. Like, I didn't... You know, you see it, but I don't have time to watch the news most of the time when we're in the thick of it. And I thought, wow, this is really powerful. I'm very... Like, I can't believe I'm part of this, you know? Even though, I mean, it's it's not my origination of, of original ideas. I mean, this came from mostly from Margaret Atwood and, and from the former designer that was there, but it was to be part of this and to say I've worked on this show is is... It's an honor, really. It is. I mean, it's you know. Yeah. I have goosebumps. Yeah. Same. <laughs> oh, and often when I tell them, they're like, "What? You worked on that?" You know, or I get emails from from people from around the world through Instagram privately saying, "You know, you've given us a, a uniform if you're powerful." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is 
and, and because it's, I mean, in, in recently in Poland, they were, uh, was it Poland, I think? No, it was Ireland. I think they were debating again with the abortion laws very recently in Europe. I mean, there's still countries in Europe that don't have, that's not legal. Uh, women's rights in general are always... You know, they're, they're sort of still second-class citizens. They still earn less. And that is worldwide. That is not just endemic of this country. It's everywhere. Um, and to hear, you know, to hear women say that to me, I was just, well, you're, you're welcome. I, I, I don't feel like, you know, I, I, I don't even know how to say you're welcome because it's not enough even to say that. I, mean, I think it's not a, a big enough response, deep enough response for them. But anyhow, it's it's... It's pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, because yeah, the cloak really is such a symbol of resistance, especially like in today's that, moment. Well, that's what happened, especially this third season. Um, have you seen? My, I'm not I have not sp- seen the most recent okay, season. Okay, I'm not giving away spoilers because okay. it's all been aired. <laughs> but uh, there's one episode where June um, murders a commander because she's just basically had her fill, and for other reasons, because she's trying to get uh, the children out. Well, in that scene, she puts on another... She goes to Jezebel's, and she ends up murdering Commander Winslow. When she comes back the next morning, the, the, the scene cuts to her waking up in her bed. She gets up, and after this whole event, gets up and puts her red dress back on. But that now no longer is a handmade dress. That's a disguise, because she's a murderess. So it's changed its whole meaning. And now it's no longer the subservient, fertile woman. It's, you know, this is courage and power. I'm going to burn you guys to the ground kind of feeling and energy and, and, and strength. So it's, wow. It's interesting that it just all of a sudden click. Right. Yeah. Transformed. Okay. Yeah. It's the other side of the coin. That's really wow. cool. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I've been saving this newest season. I haven't yeah. watched it yet. Oh. Yeah. Well, even her dress in Jezebel's, I mean, she's got mesh sleeves, which is like chain mail. And the back, there's a crisscross. And that's sort of like a bow and arrow, you know, when you carry your straps on the back. You know, that's sort of symbolic to that and the shoes she has on are killer heels that <laughs> are killer heels because that's you know <laughs> what she kicked them with <laughs> literal and symbolic so you know it's, it's it's so many meanings in that that little switch of outfit for her wow so yeah it comes her disguise now what is your favorite genre or era type of costume to work on or with i like a lot of them um i think anything where there's some really big socioeconomic change typically just post any war because people are grappling with resetting themselves healing trying to the affluence is trying to come up to the surface again whatever the little bit there is um, you, you also want to spoil yourself because you haven't had you know whether it's food or cloth or anything um, and that can be translated through any of the wars, whether it's the Franco-Prussian Wars or Second World War, First World War, even further back. So it's, I find that very interesting how things change right after the wars, and then they become really strong again. So that's and amazing. how that could be like communicated Absolutely. through costume. Yeah. Well, for example, in the um, uh, French Revolution, anyone who had a relative of the um, of nobility wore a little red string around their neck. And that was to symbolize that I've had a relative who's been guillotined. Oh. So that's the, all those little details are just amazing. That's fat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a tiny little red string. And then that's also, for example, with the hair. They had these weird haircuts that were called hedgehogs, where the back was very short and the front, because they used to cut their hair before that as well. Oh, wow. So these were all sort of homages to their family members that were executed. Wow. I had no idea. Me neither. <laughs> that's why I like costume history. Yeah, <laughs> it's so cool how much the history and yeah. anthropology yeah. and everything kind of weaves in, 
Absolutely. Or even when you just look at trims and buttons and things, um, people used um, during the Depression, they would put little buttons on everything because there was n nobody had trim. It was all, so the only thing they had were little metal buttons and they went, ladies would have buttons everywhere. Wow. Yeah, yeah the whole language behind it is fascinating because that's communicating a whole Absolutely. other world, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And that's what I find today in modern day. It's changing so much because it's becoming one global, there's not... There's not a nationality difference anymore. You know, for example, that's not a French thing. That's not a German thing. That's not an American thing. It's also becoming almost very homogenous now. Mm. So it's very hard when I have to costume something that's modern day, and I do research on, say, Boston, Toronto, um, Paris. When you look at the youth, for example, everyone is very similarly dressed. It's very hard to differentiate now. Mm. That's what I've noticed in the last five years or so when I'm doing research. Interesting. Yeah. Because of shopping, online shopping and things, right? Yeah. So you can get yeah. anything anywhere. That's true. Yeah. So on Handmaid's Tale, the people who are, or the characters mm -hmm. who are in Canada mm -hmm. and are kind of in more normal yeah. attire, yeah. How, how did you or your team decide what that was going to look like? Is it a little off kind of current real world attire? I use a lot of colors and shapes within their psychology. Um, for example, Emily. Um, when she crossed the river, you know, she landed in the hospital, and they get the first outfit you see her in is very mm, earth tones and eye colors, like it was a turtleneck, and it was, everything's to the co you know, everything's covered except her hands and her face, mm -hmm. and her colors are so neutral because she's trying to blend and heal, mm -hmm. giving herself time to heal. She doesn't want to be seen in a public, like seen in a crowd, you know. But for example, she was wearing that red dress before, and you could, you know, single out who's a handmaid in the crowd. <laughs> Um, and eventually you could see that she started going back to what she knew, which was her collegial academic look, because she was a professor. And then I started integrating blues and some shirt collars very slowly, you know, but it was all closed. Mm. Luke, for example, in, the, in, the sh in this particular season, when someone is very depressed, they don't necessarily go have a closet full of clothes, or they might have a closet full of clothing, but they certainly don't wear all of it. They'll wear two or three things, because that's not what they're thinking about. They're thinking about just finding or helping or in Luke's case trying to figure out how to get his family back and that was completely obsessing him I mean he would walk around with boxes of pictures and notes and letters and things um, so his costume arc really his clothing was very small his closet you know and there was a lot of repeats because that's also what we really truly do we end up wearing often the same six seven outfits really we always go to our favorites right because it's a kind of a known comfort thing and that's what it was it was comfort so yeah, and uh, Serena was just, to, when she got into Canada, she became sort of completely the opposite of what she was, and it was soft cashmeres and mumsy, you know, mummy, mummy, soft, cuddly, uh, mohair and cashmere and that kind of thing. The tones were completely different from the teal. So, yeah, and Moira, who was still very much trying to heal but had a little bit more zip and zazz, because that's just Moira, um, with her I brought out occasionally something a little more fun in terms of coloring and the colors are a bit brighter. So it has a lot to do with their psychology and where they are at that present time. That's really interesting yeah. to think about how they're all kind of used to this uniform and yeah. that sort of carries over even though they have more freedom. Yeah. But then also there's less of a psychological burden yes. to thinking about what you're going to wear the next day because they're focused on so many other things. Yeah, yeah and that's particularly in Luke's, uh, in Luke's character. I mean, he doesn't care what he's wearing. He just wants his family back. So, yeah. Cool. <laughs> what advice would you have for someone who's an aspiring costume designer? Don't doubt yourself. Because mm -hmm. I do it, and you should. <laughs> 
we all doubt ourselves and then sometimes when you get to the actually to the top of that little hill you kind of go what was I thinking it, was, it wasn't that wasn't that crazy and I think the thing is there's always fear you know oh I can't ask him I can't say anything but then when you take it take all the emotion out of it and you actually analyze it and you think to yourself what's the worst thing that can happen if somebody you ask somebody for something and they cannot hit you they're not allowed to anyway <laughs> they cannot hit you the worst thing they can say is no yeah, yeah. and that's not it's not shouldn't be a wounding to the point where you can't function you know you have to just keep moving on and moving forward and keep trying because somebody eventually will say yes. Mm-hmm. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's Great. the biggest thing. Yeah, we all doubt ourselves. We shouldn't. <laughs> True. <laughs> shouldn't True. be arrogant, but you shouldn't doubt yourself. You know, there's a fine line between that. I like that. Good note to end on. Um, so we always end with our rapid response segment: three, two, one, action. Three. Your favorite or most influential film? It's an Italian film. Uh, Ladro di bicicletta, the bicycle thief. Cool. Do you speak Italian too? Yes. Uh, I went to school in Rome, and I wrote my thesis in Rome, in Italian. In Rome. I, I wrote it in Rome as well. <laughs> I had to write it in Italian, so I, I have a knack for languages. And when I moved there, I spoke everything but Italian. But it becomes, it became, once you have a romance language down, it's not that hard to, you know, figure it out. Uh, finer points eventually to make these things a bit. Two, dream person you want to work with. I would say like Da Vinci and Michelangelo just because for their thought processes and their, apart from their skill, but they're, that's somebody I'd like to have dinner with, you know, just have a couple of bottles of wine and just yeah, <laughs> have a go at it. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's just their, their thought processes and then when you look at their, just their mathematical dissection of everything is brilliant. It's not how, really how I think, but I, I, you know, you look at their stuff. Wow. I would love to be able to analyze stuff in that way and be that artistic. Because yeah. usually you're one or the other. You know, I'm not that mathematically inclined. <laughs> one, best advice you've ever received? Just don't give up. Just keep asking. Just keep asking. Don't, don't, don't take no for an answer. If it's a viable thing, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I want $10 million. No. Well, come on. <laughs> you know, but, you know, uh, trying out for jobs or, or trying new things. Like, for example, I did a runway show and I'd never done one before. And then... I, did, I ended up building three different collections in, just before the show because I, I freaked out. I didn't know what I wanted to put on the runway. And it, I've never done, you know, I just thought, oh, let's try it. No, so yeah. don't be afraid to just try really crazy stuff. I like it. And action. What are you most looking forward to right now? Having more incredible projects. Mm-hmm. Just being able to convey stories onto screen and yeah, basically making them three-dimensional, tangible objects, not just stories that are told to one another, making them visual. I think that's it. Well, where can people follow you in your work? Do you, Are you active on social media? Yeah. Oh, I have on Instagram. I have a, I have a feed. Actually, uh, The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, I've explained, I pretty much, as the episodes happened, I explained and posted pictures and then all the psychology behind them. Cool. Awesome. Do, what's your handle on Instagram? The original Nata21. And it's, uh, yeah, I have many discussions and interactions. People would ask me questions on why and how come. and it, So, yeah, it was actually fun. I, I did that all the summer. Fantastic. I had a good time. Awesome. <laughs> great. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Natalie. This was a great conversation. You're most welcome, and thank you for having me. You can find us at afemalelens.com and at afemalelens on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at afemalelens at gmail.com. And you can download the show anywhere you listen to podcasts and on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you left us a review. Our theme song was composed by Jesse Nelson. Our logos were created by Megan Cafferty. Elise Welch is our associate producer. And A Female Lens was created by Jennifer Zollett and Larkin Bell.